This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Hello and welcome to episode 4 of the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host as always, Edward Jones, and joining me, of course, is my co-host, Stephen. Hello, everybody, and thanks for having me again. Um, today we're going to be looking at the 1994 Wong K. film Chunking Express, and today's film comes with the theme of cinema shame for ourselves. Um, for those obviously not familiar with what we're talking about when we say cinema shame these are films which people believe that you should have seen but for whatever reason uh you haven't obviously got around to watching so these are the films that sort of hang uh kind of shamefully on your film watching resume of like those gaps and uh there's an actual site and a supporting podcast also called cinema shame who basically inspired me to go back and look at chunking express because for the longest time it was one of those films which I know I should have seen, but for whatever reason, I just never got around to it. I think I watched about five, ten minutes of it uh, when it first came out through Tarzan. Couldn't quite get to grasp with what was going on and never sort of returned to it. So, obviously, coming in to do this show, uh, and obviously, we're here, you know, two English guys providing you with an introduction to Asian cinema. And I thought, well, what better time to obviously go back and scratch it off the list? So, Stephen, I mean, we all have our own cinema shames. What would you say is on your list in terms of like Asian cinema? Well, I would say there is one director who probably most fans of Asian cinema are probably one of their go-to guys. I've barely seen any of his films. And I'm sitting here at the moment staring at copies of Hard Boiled and A Better Tomorrow. So my cinema shame is I haven't watched anything of... um, Mr. John Woo rather than uh, Redcliffe <laughs> so I think that's fairly shameful for someone who proclaims himself to be an Asian cinema expert it's really funny you should mention Redcliffe because that's the first title on my list um, <laughs> how funny I mean I love John Woo John Woo is like one of my entry points into Asian cinema in many ways especially with Hong Kong action cinema I mean as you mentioned already Better Tomorrow and Hard Boiled two sort of like key titles of his filmography um Hard Boiled, I would say, is like his masterwork. It's like what Police Story is to Jackie Chan, or like Enter the Dragon is to Bruce Lee. It's like this is a director working at the height of his powers. I mean, he's not only teamed up with Chow Yun Fat, and the pairing of John Woo and Chow Yun Fat is kind of like Scorsese and De Niro in a way. It's this powerful pairing, and it's always great when these two come together. And they first one, I mean. In many ways, it's a great companion piece to The Killer. Um, and it's just packed full of so much action and heroic gunplay. Anthony Wong's in it. I mean, there's just so many positive things to say about Hard Boiled. I mean, I'm surprised being an Asian cinema fan that you've just not seen Hard Boiled. I mean, John Woo in general. I mean, like I say, other, other than Redcliffe and some of his American work... I've never, I've never gone there. In fact, it gets even worse because now you mention it, I haven't seen an awful lot of Chow Yun Fat's films either. Obviously, um, Crouching Tiger. Yeah. It, it, but, but apart from that, it's bits and bobs here and there. Um, so, yeah, consider me shamed. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> okay, I mean, from my own list, uh, this is one a title which I bought the box set uh, with every intention of watching it when it came out. I was like super excited for this uh, film when it came out, and of course, it's just since then sat on the shelf gathering dust. And that's the trilogy of 20, 20th Century Boys. Um, now, this was one I first read about in Neo, which is like a Asian cinema and culture magazine we have here over in the UK. And uh, I was super excited to see it. And uh, for whatever reason, I've just never actually watched it. Um, I mean, have you seen that one, Stephen? All right. So we've got a joint shame here. <laughs> I I own the first um, film. Okay. I've never, never watched it. I'm not, I have to admit, um, Jap- Japanese cinema is probably my weakest market. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it, they're, they're, it, if I mention Death Note, I haven't seen any of the Death Note films either. Which, oh, okay. <laughs> that's a, you know, there are some of these, some of these more franchisey type things I've just never dived into, and that's probably why the clue is probably in the fact that they have become franchises. And investing my time in one film is one thing. Investing my time into three, four films is uh, is a harder thing to commit to. Yeah, I mean, 20th Century Boys is adapted from the manga, and it follows a suit of sort of live-action adaptations that we saw. We obviously saw, like, Assassination Classroom as well, uh, Death Note, which you mentioned as well, which is uh, soon to get its Americanized remake, should we say, um, through Netflix. And what I've seen in the trailer, I'm excited to see. I know a lot of people out there are saying that that they're just going to stick with the originals, but, you know, good for them. Um by having the Americanized version, it doesn't take away from having the original version. That's still safe. The trilogy isn't going anywhere. So, I mean, are you excited to see the Netflix version, or are you I'm just going to see the original no. version first? Well, we've seen both, but I, you know, I, I think I think we've had this conversation before, maybe on the other podcast. That I'm a, I, I, I'm all for American remakes. I mean, there haven't been many good ones, but um, if it gets somebody interested in checking out the original then that makes me happy um and and uh, yeah it's my you know that there are so many asian cinema is such a big and wide ranging area i guess um it's not surprising we've got these huge holes and you know something something needs to inspire me to go down that rabbit hole a netflix tv series might be the thing i need yeah i mean i would love to see more asian cinema especially popular Asian cinema appear on Netflix. I know that they do a lot of the drama on there and we have a few bits and pieces, but it would be nice just to have some solid picks to sort of fill out the, not perhaps just the Asian cinema section on Netflix, uh, but just like the foreign cinema on a whole. Um, Because at the moment all we seem to get is just sort of like very niche Bollywood movies on there and we'll get like three or four um, Asian cinema films and it just feels like it's very lacking I mean the whole Netflix UK catalogue on a whole feels like it's lacking compared to its US counterpart but it'd be nice to to have um, have that and I think even if a site dedicated to sort of streaming live action Asian content would be great because I think at the moment we have what Crunchyroll which is anime um, and manga but uh, we never seem to have for that site just dedicated to sort of uh, feathering the interests of the Asian cinema sort of connoisseur, really. Indeed. And, I mean, obviously, as you know, one of my uh, favourite Asian filmmakers and film stars is Stephen Chow. And I look on Netflix and there's 
three of his films on there, <laughs> of which only one is probably considered a classic. I think Shaolin Soccer's on there, yeah, along with Justice My Foot and Alone in the Dark. Now, I don't think even the most fervent Stephen Chow fan is really going to put Alone in the Dark as as, as top anything. Um, so it just seems that awful shame because i can't believe they cost that much um to to get to get hold of and i think there's a i think there is a there is a market for that kind of film um there is in world cinema terms you know netflix has got there's french movies and and spanish movies on there i suppose and like you say a a, re- a fairly good sampling of bollywood and other indian cinema if you're into that kind of thing but it just does it does feel like i know a lot of people who do you can stand a subtitle or two and uh, just maybe it would be more worthwhile than some of the drivel that's on there. <laughs> yeah, it's the problem with when we have international licensing. And I mean, this is why we have situations such as Snowpiercer happening, which the Americans are still astounded the fact that we don't have Snowpiercer still. Yeah, it still remains in distribution hell. And for the moment, it also looks like Shin Godzilla is also going to be there as well. So. Ah well, I watched Shin Godzilla last week because I ordered the I ordered the DVD from Hong Kong because oh, okay. um, I couldn't. I thought I'm not going to wait for that to ever appear outside of maybe a festival. <laughs> yeah, it's not happening anytime soon. I mean, did you have anything else on your cinema shame list? Or is it just uh, John Woo? No, I think it's John Woo, and then you mentioned the killer as well. I haven't seen that either, so it's I think yeah, I think that's it's... fairly sad. But I'm very shocked you haven't seen Redcliffe. I think it's the prospect of a four-hour film, and it's where do I find time to sit down and watch four hours of of anything, um, let alone a a Hong Kong epic. Um, What I would what I would recommend with Redcliffe is that you get the the two film version. So there's there's a there's a it is available in two halves. Okay. So approach the first half and and the second half, and give yourself a week off in between or something like that. Yeah, because I've got the I've got the actual director's cut, so I've got the full four-hour version there, and I believe I've got the the original release that they put out as well. But I'm not sure what if that's just like the first half or or, or what's happening with that. So, but no, Ray Cliff's one of those uh, outstanding John Woo tells I need to see. As someone who's obviously not seen either The Killer or Hard Bold, I would say to watch The Killer first. Um, ideally, you want to watch A Better Tomorrow, then The Killer, then Hard Bold. Uh, mainly because if you watch like, Hard Bold first, it kind of ruins it because it's such a, a high point. And any other film that you watch at the back catalogue, you're going to be find yourself drawing comparisons too. So it's always best to watch them in sort of escalating goodness. Is it like having your dessert first? Yes. <laughs> It's, it's, that's the thing you're, you're going to ruin that steak that's all you're going to do Cause it, all the films are great in an individual way so it's sort of, you just want to build up it's kind of like when you watch Enter the Dragon first and then you think oh I'll go back and watch like the big boss and you've got to work, deal with like Bruce Lee not doing anything for the first 30 minutes it's it's kind of a letdown because you, you know what he's capable of but why isn't he doing it so but that's that, that's how I would approach it no, that's a, that's a very interesting. That that that's something we should um take into account in some future shows. Actually, sometimes mm-hmm. when we pick a film, just to mention where it is along the 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 the, yeah. the creator's um arc of 
brilliance or not. Well, I mean, there's certain directors you can get away with entering at any point, like uh, Takashi Miike, for example. Uh, Sion Sono uh, would be, again, another example. I mean, those directors, you can take any film within their filmography and enjoy it for what it is. There's no sort of, like, rising the scale with those directors. They make good films, they make bad films, and it's if anything it's more just the period they were in such as especially with like the likes of uh Mike, uh whether you're going to get something from his outlaw period or his more mainstream creative period that he's currently in at the moment um another of uh the films that i really should have seen especially as it was a tarzan release and that's tale of two sisters oh uh, my god i'm sorry but stop the podcast <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm, I'm dumbfounded. Um, yeah, that, I'm just okay. Well, I promise, I promise the audience that's going to be on our list <laughs> to talk about in the next few, um, next few episodes because, I mean, that is the finest Korean uh, film of any one of the finest Korean films of any genre ever, um, and and uh, in in the horror-ish genre. It, it's fairly it's gold standard stuff okay it the problem is with tale of two sisters is that it's never on film four that's that would be the main reason and it's not again it's one of those films i own a dvd but for some reason i never get around to watching it and i think because it's a horror film there's this sort of mindset especially being an asian horror film it's got this sort of mindset that you have to be in the correct sort of mindset to watch it because it's probably going to require a little more work than like an American horror film uh, because of how things are projected. But I mean, Tell Two Sisters, it was really one of the early titles for Tartan. It was certainly at the forefront of the J-horror or just Asian horror um, sort of boom on a whole really because of, as you said it's a Korean film but we still tend to class it as being the same as a as a J-horror uh, so in, things like The indeed. Ring and actually it's not really a horror film at all it's a psychological drama with uh, horror tropes skirting around it um, but it's a thing it's a thing of visual beauty as, as you may expect with that director yeah. Um, so yes you must sort that out I'll sort out my John Woo uh <laughs> deficit if you fix that (laughs) (laughs) um the final one that i've also got my list is nausicaa valley of the wind from studio ghibli uh again this is one of their early titles and i've seen all of about the first five minutes and i think this is more to do the fact i'm just such an animation snob that when film 4 launched as a free channel over here in the uk they kicked things off by having a season of Ghibli movies and they showed them in both the more hard to find subtitle cuts at the time as well as the dub cuts and I was really excited about Nautica Valley of the Wind and it started and the animation seemed really kind of dated being from the 80s uh, I believe I believe it is and uh, yeah I didn't last more than five minutes and since then all I've constantly heard is how essential Nautica Valley of the Wind is especially to anime fans are not only just studio ghibli fans so it's one i need to go back and cross off the list and i think now i may have come off my sort of pedestal slightly in terms of like 
animation snobbery because I've seen things such as like Little Notes Prince, uh, Castle of Castrologo, which are both that sort of old school animated style, and I've enjoyed them both immensely. So I think now is sort of the time, going back a little older, a little wiser, um, as a viewer to uh, obviously go back and finally cross off Norsuka Valley of the Wind. I mean, if it's any consolation, I haven't seen that either. Okay. So uh, my my Ghibli experience is fairly limited. Um, you know, certainly I've seen most of the more recent stuff um, to, and things like Totoro and Spirited Away, um, obviously Princess Mononoke, but um, I haven't seen much of the early stuff at all. And Norska is certainly amongst that um, that shame pile. Yeah. Well, there you have it. There's a. Uh, I think we're just sort of scraping the surface of our cinematic shames here for Asian cinema. And if anything, we've certainly given ourselves a whole bunch of uh, new cinema to obviously track down and cover on this show. So, I think if anything, we've given our listeners a sort of a taste of what's really to expect in the next few episodes. If you obviously want to share your own cinema shame, uh, cinema shame would obviously love to hear from you. You can share your shame statements for 2017. Uh, drop them a line on Twitter, which is at cinema shame. They are also got the webpage as well, which is cinemashame.wordpress.com, and they do also have a podcast as well. The most recent episode featuring. Greg from uh, the Debatable Podcast as he talked about his cinema shame for the Marx Brothers which uh, is a really good listen I recommend you uh, checking it out but it's a really fun project and uh, it's nice to know sometimes that you know you're not the only person who hasn't watched The Godfather or The Graduate or in my case uh, <laughs> certain key elements of Studio Ghibli we're going to obviously be crossing off another title for my own cinema shame list uh, this evening when we look at Chunking Express which we'll be looking at after this short break so this thing we want to do what exactly is it? I think it's a podcast I think he just made that word up well anyway what would it be about? Uh, it can be about those things we see in the things you know with the pictures and the acting and sometimes Ryan Gosling oh you mean films? yeah those we can talk about those and Ryan Gosling and what would we call it? Women who speak weirdly? Uh, ladies? Young ladies? All the single ladies? Mm. Oh wait, I know. Oh, chicks with accents. Yeah, and we could use that song from the Beatles and that movie, Across the Universe. Cool. Yeah. Listen to the Across the Universe podcast, brought to you by the Chicks with Accents. Available just about everywhere. And we're back. Uh, now on to obviously our featured film for this evening. We're going to be looking at Chunking Express in 1994, a Hong Kong drama film written and directed by Wong Kei-Wa. This is a film which uh, Kei-Wa came to make purely by accident, really. At the time, he was working on his epic uh, wuxia movie, Ashes of Time. And the production, it was encountering a number of problems. He just wasn't finding his flow making it so he decided to go off and make a smaller film to just recharge his batteries and regain his mojo and that film was chunking express um now at this point in his career he had made a few films already and was kind of making a name for himself really uh amongst the fans of sort of hong kong cinema as a whole uh with his films such as as tears go by from 1988 and days of being wild from 1990. chunking express is split into two 
individual stories. Um, the films themselves both follow police officers. In the first story, we have got cop called uh, 223, or Hugh Kwe. Um He's played by Takashi uh, Kanshiro. And basically, in his story, he's broke up with his girlfriend. And he's in a bit of a slump, so he's trying to find all these ways to get over his breakup and along the way he encounters uh this mysterious woman played by bridget lynn who in turn is trying to basically survive this underworld drug deal that's gone wrong uh with the two finding a connection as they hang out at this uh, club now the second story it follows another cop uh 663 here played by tony lung che we and he's basically also broken up with his girlfriend who was a flight attendant and he's sprites up this uh, sort of friendship uh, relationship with this sort of manic pixie dream girl uh, who works at the local sort of restaurant and uh, she's played by Faye Wong in her first film acting role and she basically takes it upon herself to break into his apartment and redecorate and generally improve his situation to try and try and cheer him up in a way and the film the second story basically follows their relationship and as the two sort of find this common ground between them but obviously soon i know you're a big fan of this film already this was sort of my first time watching this film as we mentioned already this is me trying to cross something off the, the cinema shame list but what is it you like so much about chunking express i think firstly it's and I'm surprised if most people don't have this reaction is that you fall in love with Faye Wong and her, her, her just performance is amazing and I, I will talk a bit about the the actors in this film. Secondly, you get I mean it's quite light, light and breezy, isn't it? It's it's not yeah you know, it is an art house movie. Let's make no bones about it, but it's not it's 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 fairly light fare, um, and you get cinematography from two of the greats of Asian cinema um, the Australian Christopher Doyle um, who, who is, is, you know, is famous for work with Wong Kar Wai and also Andrew Lau who is another top sort of cinematographer from that area so, so just the general look of it the music, the look we have, t- we have t- uh, Takeshi Kadashiro in a very early role who who go who will go on to be a, a huge star, uh, little Tony Long, who is probably the biggest star currently in Hong Kong cinema, and you have an icon in Bridget Lin, all mixed together in this this lovely light frothy not too long um, film that doesn't hit the stereotypes of Asian cinema. And to top it all off, it just creates Hong Kong. Um, maybe a Hong Kong, a pre-handover Hong Kong. We can we can argue about that. But you know, I've been to Hong Kong a few times, and it utterly captures the busyness and the craziness of the city or the city-state um, in a way that very few films capture the sense of a place um, in 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 the round. Yeah, it's. I think when we open, I mean, when we open the film, it's got this frantic camera work where everything seems to be blurred, 
as the camera sort of moves uh, quickly back and forth. And I mean, we're obviously introduced pretty early on to Bridget Lynn here in that sort of iconic get-up, really. I mean, she's there, she's got the blonde hair, she's got the dark sunglasses, and I mean, am I right in saying this was like her final film that she she did for like a period? Well, yeah, so if we, if we talk about Bridget Lynn, I mean, she started, she's a Taiwanese actress, and, and she started off, oh, I'm going to say, back in the 60s, and she was a, a star of Taiwanese cinema, a great beauty, um, lots of romantic dramas, lots of films you can get on places like Yasasia.com but don't have any subtitles. You know, she's a big thing. She moved into Hong Kong cinema with some fairly famous outstanding. Was quite often as a as a as a, as a eunuch <laughs> for some reason. She's quite famous for dressing as a man. So there's films yeah. like Pe- Peking Opera Blues. Um, uh, what else was she in? Um, oh crikey. Uh, Swordsman 2 and 3 I, I want to say she's in some other Choi Hark films but I can't I can't remember I've just drawn a blank and I'm not okay. going to move to Wikipedia right now but she she is she is an icon um, so if you have the uh, Tarantino produced DVD or Blu-ray of this film he'll, he'll, he'll talk about this the way that she's considered sort of the, the Greta Garbo if you like of um, of of classic Asian cinema really and absolutely this was she was she'd announced her intention to retire so this was her last proper film she's appeared in a couple of things since but effectively she retired got married goodbye to the film industry Um, and I understand originally the role was to be of a retiring actress and that's why the whole blonde wig and everything look is there and then it didn't work because Wong Kar Wai was working literally he was writing scenes in the morning and filming them in the evening so they changed it um, and he's more he took an inspiration from John Cassavetes's Gloria so that's so, so again the look and the look of her character came from there but this was yeah this was this was it for an icon yeah I mean Bridget Lynn with her retirement I mean it's the same as Michelle Yeoh Michelle Yeoh originally retired when she got married i mean it was shortly after she did magnificent warriors and it was this seen as the thing to do that when an actress got married that they re- they would essentially retired from the industry um and i mean this is really a fantastic film if you're going to retire on any film i think this is the film to retire on and as you mentioned already i mean when we look at the bridget Lynn filmography she's plays like one of three roles normally she's either a god um a a woman playing a male character as we saw like in Swordman 2 and 3 or she's essentially a force of nature which she really is in this film I mean she's playing this uh, this underworld um, agent in a way she's a she's a drug dealer and she basically gets set up by her, her boyfriend and she is hiding out in this bar where she obviously meets this police officer and the two never actually say what they do they just have this connection in in this bar it's a very unusual relationship they're just sort of hanging out at the bar and i mean the fact that uh we obviously have him in these uh two two three and he's when he's introduced he's basically trying to find food that expires on the date his relationship ended so he ends up buying like 30 tins of pineapple which he then has the great idea of oh i'm just going to sit here and eat pineapple um 
And it was his. It was his. It was his ex-girlfriend's favourite food. So, the night that Bridget, Lynn, and uh, Takeshi's characters meet, the next day is his birthday. So, it, and it will also have been a month since his girlfriend May. And there are a couple of characters called May in this film. Um, and so I think, I think he's, he, he, he seems to be driven by these kind of almost OCD routines. So he also talks about when you split up with someone, I've got to go jogging. I've got to sweat out all the, all the water in my body so I can't cry anymore. So that's a routine that he's, 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 he's trying not to do yet. Um, and, and he's, and the, and the pineapple is just another example of this. Well, I'm going to have to. I'm going to do this for a month. And if she doesn't call back, you know, if it doesn't happen, then I'm going to eat it. Or that that that's that's the time it finishes. And this meeting of Bridget Lynn's character, who's had a hell of a day or two, <laughs> um, it's just both of them reaching like the end of their tether, I guess, at this point, a, a common point, a common night in their lives where everything changes. For two, two, three, he's going to get on with his life. For Bridget Lynn's character, it's escaping, I guess, isn't yeah. it? And when they first meet, though, in the bottom up, bottoms up club, which is probably up there with the greatest bar names ever, the fact that he's she has no interest in in talking to him essentially, and she's just there, she's just there smoking and drinking and hiding out, and he's going for this whole routine and his amazing pickup line is do you like pineapple which he goes through pretty much he what he goes through um mandolin he goes with cantonese he's trying all these different languages to try and find out what she actually speaks and you would think that these characters would have any connection whatsoever and you would think that that would be where it end him failing to pick up uh failing to pick her up but instead they end up going to this hotel where they just basically watch movies and eat takeout food and she passes out and he shines her shoes for whatever reason before leaving and it's it's such an unusual story that this connection of these two characters um and the fact that she she obviously goes on with her life and he continues with his it's like this chance meeting only at the end that Obviously, one K Wild decides, you know, we'll be, I am going to bring them together because she sends him a page, a page wishing him a happy birthday. Um, but at the same time, you have a feeling that it could have just been this chance meeting between these two characters that they meet at a bar, they hang out in a hotel room, and that's like the only time that they meet. They don't ever meet again. That that would have been still an acceptable end to the story. But in a way, Carway wants us to sort of feel some sort of hope that these two would have some sort of connection beyond the story that we see here. Yeah, because he's he seems um Wong Kar Wai seems very interested in the in the fact in the hustle and bustle of Hong Kong. So this this section set in um on Kowloon side near um the famous Chunking Mansions um on Nathan Road, which is this I guess it's like a a mall if you want a better word full of um tiny apartments and little shops and lots of crime it's very um very popular with the actually south asian immigrant community there um and it's it's about amongst all this hustle and bustle where people are rubbing up against each other all the time these two people they do accidentally meet early on don't they but it's a it's a they're, they're a tenth of a centimeter apart or something for, <laughs> for, 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 for a tiny fraction. But it's about, I guess, in a really busy city, about two incredibly lonely people finding a connection 
but it's it's fleeting. Yeah. Um, and 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 that's, he, he's that, that's what Wong Kar Wai seems to be interested in. This film is this is the brief connections between people in a very confined space, which is Hong Kong, Kowloon, the 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 sea state. Well, I mean, just obviously stay on this first story. I mean. The story ends with uh, Tutu Free having a chance encounter with um, with Faye, who obviously is at the centre of the second story. So it's got a very smooth transition from one story to the next. But this first story I found to be the weaker of the two um, is one that I've enjoyed replaying since I watched it. But when you first watch it, it seems kind of nothingy. Um, and it's only when you start taking it apart and looking at the individual parts and the interactions of these two characters that it becomes a lot more interesting uh, than it initially may seem when you watch it to begin with. Um, but uh, yeah, I think if it had not been for the second story, I probably would have rated this film a lot lower than I ultimately did. I couldn't, ag- I couldn't agree more. When I first saw it, I was nonplussed by the first story. I, to me, it never got going. I didn't understand what was going on. I, uh, what's happening here? I got charmed by the second half story, the second story, which we'll talk about in a minute. And then on rewatches, this one grows on you. There, there's, there's more to it. Um, and it's interesting that we've both had the same feeling because a lot of people are the other way around about it they find this the interesting story and the second story a bit light and inconsequential yeah and i know that uh, like if you ever take like a film film school class or like a film studies class and chunking express gets put up they love talking about when he's like buying the tins of pineapple and looking for this mythical exploration date uh they just absolutely love those scenes for whatever reason and it's as I said, it just seems very nonplussed when you first watch it. And it's only when you watch it a couple of times and take time to sort of take it apart that it that it suddenly makes sense. Um but yeah, I mean the second story is really where the heart of this film lies and I think what charms a lot of people with this film is obviously with the second story. I mean, as we mentioned Ray, this follows an unnamed cop, um, only known by his badge number which is six six three. And as with Quay in the first story, he's dealing with a breakup of his own. Um, he was involved with a flight attendant, and she basically left him. And uh, he's now dealing with this breakup by bait, essentially burying himself in his work. And he gets involved with uh, this new girl, Faye, who's working at his the snack bar on his route. And Faye, as we mentioned already, is played by the absolutely adorable Fei Wong who yeah she falls into that same sort of category as like Alabama in True Romance uh, or when we look at uh, Zoe Do- Chanel's character Summer in 500 Days of Summer she's this essentially the Asian version of a manic pixie dream girl she's there she's got like the doe eyes she's this free spirit who listens to um California Dream by the Mamas and Papas on like an almost constant loop so if you hate that song you're really not going to like the second story because it's pretty much the only thing that soundtracks it um, alongside a cover of the Cranberry song Dreams which is bizarrely renamed as Dream Lover uh, on the actual soundtrack because Fei Wong does the 
Asian version on the soundtrack. I had no idea why they actually chose to rename it, but uh, yeah, it's the backing track of it is exactly the same. It's just the lyrics are all now in Cantonese, I would say. Yes. Okay, so let's talk about Fei Wong for a minute. For for those people who aren't knowledgeable about the Asian pop scene, she was, and to some degree still is, probably the biggest star. She is she is the Madonna of Asian pop music. Um, so I don't think it's very hard for us to understand what a big star she is she's only been in a handful of movies and as you say this is her first and and, and this is easily her best performance by by degrees of uh, <laughs> of, of uh, just uh, unexplainable degrees but she she's she's a huge huge star she um she had several phases in her music i as i understand it she changed the lyrics as well so it's called dream lover because the lyrics aren't just a direct translation okay she sings it she also and, and she's released it in both cantonese and mandarin versions i would assume it's in cantonese in this film yeah because it's set in hong kong but she is actually originally from mainland china but she made her fame she got super big by becoming um as part of the sort of canter pop explosion in, in in and around this sort of this this time period sort of late 80s early 90s and she's still going today she's a bit weird <laughs> <laughs> she's a bit crazy but uh yeah she's still incredibly popular i, I won't i did call her the the madonna of asia that's not right because that, that that actually belongs to another famous hong kong actress singer anita mui who is actually literally known as the madonna or was until she passed away as the madonna of asia but just think of her as as that level of fame well i mean fei wong if we look at the encyclopedia of contemporary chinese culture uh jerome de clorette characterized her as a singer actress mother celebrity royalty sex symbol and diva all at the same time and she's like bridget lynn she really is a force of nature but in very different terms um obviously bridget lynn has her own presence and when we look at fei wong especially in this film because uh this was only one of two collaborations she did with one k while the other one being 2046 uh the follow-up to in the move for love in this film she's as i said she just sort of appears she's this wild free spirit um who has pretty much lives by her own rules so she thinks nothing of the fact of breaking into 663's apartment or redecorating or making any any number of changes to improve how she sees his life and for whatever reason he doesn't seem to mind that the crazy girl from the local snack bar is obviously doing this which I find absolutely astounding yes I know it is Fei Wong but if the person at your local subway suddenly decide to arrange house and start rearranging your furniture. I think you would have something to say about it. I would think, wouldn't you say, Stephen? I would. Although there's an interesting that their their trajectories kind of cross, don't they? Because um, six 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 three. Yeah. What is? Yeah. Six six three is is in a bit of denial about the loss of his ex girlfriend, who in this case we do meet uh, briefly. Um, uh, actress called uh, Valerie something or other. It'll come to me in a second. Valerie Chow. Valerie Chow, who, in 
in film gossip actually had an affair with Tony Long <laughs> and that basically killed her career so this is this is about it she's got she's got quite a quite a lot of credits but nothing else of this level um but yeah and, and you know he he the same way as a Takeshi Kaneshiro's character is sort of in this fugue. He says, and he's talking to his soap and his flannel, uh, his towel, and things like that, and sort of giving personalities to the the mundanity of his life. While she is getting interested in him, and as you say, breaking into his apartment. Well, she doesn't, but she has a key, but he doesn't know she's got it, and she slowly changes his life. But and, and and he doesn't really notice it going on but when it all comes to a head he's interested in her and then she's suddenly scared of this crap it's real <laughs> and she starts to, to pull away so the trajectories change and he gets more and more interested as she goes oh what am i doing i've got things to do with my life i'm not ready for this yet um so it, 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 it's a bit sad really isn't it that they, they get close and then they sort of go away and then maybe there's a glimmer of hope at the end this is the thing and by the end though they've essentially changed swapped roles Faye has morphed into a flight attendant so she has essentially took the Valerie Chow role and become essentially a 663's old girlfriend meanwhile 663 has somehow been conned by Faye Wong's cousin into taking over the snack bar so he's gone from being a police officer to now running a snack bar I don't know whether that's considered a good career move for him or not, but yeah, he's essentially uh, now doing the job she was doing when we first meet her. Um, it's an unusual relationship, and it's—I mean, the whole the, the whole character six six three. Whenever we see him in any sort of romantical interaction, it is so weird. Like, we see his relationship that he was having with his flight attendant girlfriend, and he spends more time landing toy planes on her backside than actually attending to her needs. And she she herself does have that wonderfully uh, sexy moment where she's going through the in-flight checks and somehow turning it into a seductive maneuver, um, which is interesting to see and was certainly a high point of this story. Um, each their own. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, if anything though, I mean, this is, Faye Wong totally steals this story and I think it's just purely by how carefree her character is and where, and she provides this, while she, on the surface, she seems to be like this insane character, but the more we see of 663, he's kind of not all there already. I mean, he takes time off work for his apartment to be depressed, um, and, he talks to his soap and like comments on how it's lost weight because it's been worn down and um, how his towel's weeping because it's wet and I, I don't know is this just Wong K Wah doing like getting into some like art house nonsense or is there some sort of deeper meaning I was missing by how attached to his possession 663 is I guess it's all about his denial isn't it um, that <laughs> He, again, it's somebody in the big city that's not really connecting with those around him. Um, remember the scene uh, fairly early on when he gets his black coffee and at the Midnight Express bar uh, uh, counter and 
she what you see her watching him drink but the world around is sped up but they're they're in the sort of the background of the shot yeah in a in a more frozen time i guess that's him he's not moving on just like kanashiro's character isn't moving on um and it takes this this force of nature this <laughs> this 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 crazy thing to, to to bump him into life again um and, and and unfortunately for the pair of them like i said before that that, that exposes a vulnerability in Faye's character that, that sadly brings them on different trajectories again we obviously at the end of this story we have more of an in, an idea that these two characters are going to end up together in many ways um so i mean how what do you think obviously the future holds for 663 and Faye? um can we see them as having some sort of relationship or are they like our first couple that you know it it's all very ambiguous as to what direction that the story is going to go next for them I like to think they'll end up together, right? <laughs> because at heart, I'm a romantic, right? Mm. My suspicion is, however, no one, there isn't, there are no couples in this film. The only relationship between a man and a female I can strongly remember is if you remember Bridget Lynn kidnaps a young girl from a from a, one of the Indian shopkeepers to try yes. and force him to um tell him where these uh, missing drug runners have gone and you know and she doesn't she's not a very good kidnapper and she gives him back gives her back in and out that 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 relationship between that father and the daughter i think is the only successful relationship between two people of the opposite sex in the entire film so i i, I hate to say it i think i think i think it's actually quite a there's quite a negative uh, background to this, a negative view of um, the ability of relationships to exist, okay. certainly within certainly within the Chunking Express yeah. universe. I mean, when we look at these two stories, I mean, the original plan was that it was going to be like Pulp Fiction, it was going to be three stories. Uh, the third story was actually expanded into its own film, which was Fallen Angels, which um, is not a film I've yet to see, so... You know, we're at that's the ever expanding cinema shameless there. Um, but the work of one K Y on a whole, it's I think because it's so popular with like the art house crowd, that's what's always put me off sort of exploring his films further. Um and it made it such a surprise that he would obviously go on to direct a martial arts movie like The Grandmaster. Since obviously coming back as an old viewer and i can appreciate things such as like in the mood for love or 2046 um and now even like chunking express i mean how would you sort of define 1k was work as a whole i mean do you see him as being an art house director or do you uh, see him as being something a little more contemporary um i i i view him as an art house director um i have a very mixed relationship with his movies um I adore Chunking Express. I adore In the Mood for Love. I love Fallen Angels. I like um, uh, Ashes of Time. I like Ashes of Time. The Grandmaster. I have no time for at all. Opportunity, <laughs> opportunity missed there. Um, Twenty forty six. I think is dreadful. Uh, so, so it's 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 either highs or lows. Other than Ashes of Time, 
which I'm I'm nonplussed about. I find his films polarizing, but he comes out of a a school of um a, 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 a school of or a generation of Hong Kong based filmmakers, along with John Woo and Choi Hark um, and a couple of others of that late 80s, early 90s, exploding into the 2000s, that are really, really important. And what I like about him is that he is a different sort of storyteller. Yeah, he's he's he has made a wuxia film, or he's made a and he's he's made a martial arts film, and he's he's done the he's done those kind of genre films that we expect. But he's also made very personal stories, very interesting stories, stories that are dealing with homosexuality, stories dealing with you know sadness, and and not as visceral as maybe some of those other directors we talked about. But at the same time, I think they're very cerebral. Um, but I think they are as affecting as his contemporaries. I've, I've rambled there, I know, but I, it, it, it really goes into sort of the, the 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 real dichotomy of feeling I have towards his films. You know, it literally is. There's a handful of them I adore, a handful of them I can't stand. I mean, he certainly had his influence, and uh, he certainly has his fans. I know Quentin Tarantino says that Chunking Express is one of his favourite films of all time, since he saw it at a film festival while he was promoting Pulp Fiction. And at that point, I mean, he'd seen Days of Being Wild and As Tears Go By, which is also cited as being his favourite. And there's other directors that we can also look at that have obviously been that show influence by his work. I mean, like uh, Zhang Young or Tu Talk would be sort of the most noteworthy mentions outside of Tarantino. So I think Tarantino certainly was responsible for Chunking Express getting a wider release than it probably would have. Um, he obviously released it through his Rolling Thunder Pictures uh, label, and over here it was released through Artificial Eye, I believe, um, here in the UK. So it somehow managed to not slip through the gaps. I mean, if we were obviously looking at Wonka Wa's work for the newcomer, I mean, what film would you recommend starting with? I I, I have a very strong answer for this because I, in the mood for love, Maggie Chung and and Tony little Tony Lung, um, to me isn't just the primer for um, Wonka Wai. It's it's a gateway to Asian cinema for people who are interested in going in a, a, a non-action door. Yeah, um, it's it's incredibly beautiful. It's in it's got a compelling story, two fantastic performances, but it's got an obliqueness and an art houseness about it at the same time. Um, I you know if someone says to me, oh, "What should I go for? What should be the first? Not just one car away, but if they are not." A genre person, I would definitely go for in the mood for love. That's cool. Now, further watching. So, if you obviously watched Chungking Express and enjoyed it, um, what film? I mean, what would you sort of pair this with? Okay. Well, you've already mentioned it. Actually, is that I was going to pair it with Fallen Angels, um, which, as you rightfully say, is the follow-up of sorts um it's another there's another two stories 
in it. The the the, the primary one, which is about uh, Leon Lay, another major Hong Kong superstar, <laughs> one of the four heavenly kings, plays um, a sort of a hitman, and uh, his relationship with his um, his partner or arranger is very interesting. It's 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 again. Um, it, it, it's Christopher Doyle cinematography again. Um, Takashi Kaneshiro turns up as a different character with the same name, a mute in a, in a, in a side story, um, but they all combine. But it's a, it's a very, very similar. The two films certainly go together. Um, you also get a bit of Karen Mock in it as well. It's a bit sexier, <laughs> literally. Um, so you know, bring your bring your bring your shot glasses with you. But uh, I I think you know it, it's the perfect pairing for it. Even though it's a bit of a cheat, seeing it saying as it's the follow up. Let's go. Um, for myself, I mean, I've gone back and forth over what to obviously pair this with. The first film I would want to put it with would be um, Kim K. Duck's Samaritan Girl from two thousand and four. Um, which has these two teenage girls who are trying to earn money for a trip to Europe, and basically you've got one of them is act, is sort of like prostituting herself while the other acts as a pimp. And when this girl who's acts as prostitute like kills herself, the friend basically goes through all her clients, all her former clients, uh, trying to find a way to connect to her friend, while at the same time her father gets the wrong idea and basically starts going around and sort of seeking revenge on these guys who he thinks have been using his daughter and it's a very unique film and it's certainly um, one which is hard to describe to people who aren't sort of familiar with familiar with sort of Asian cinema as a whole and the sort of stories that that are are told Uh, the other which obviously ties me into my other sort of pairing and that would be free iron from 2004 um a grand directed by kim k duck um and this was really inspired by Faye wong's antics in this film where we've obviously got this guy who essentially invites himself into uh this rich businessman's life and lives the lives the life of this this guy within his apartment at the same time forming uh, this weird bond with his abused this businessman's abused wife and it's a very again it's a very unusual film and it's one which i find very hard to justify why i like it whenever i've been asked why i've enjoyed it but uh it's certainly a film as i said like as Mountain girl which what keeps asian cinema interesting for myself and what constantly keeps me back coming back and finding new and interesting things and those were the two films that I kept thinking of when I was watching uh, Chungking Express, obviously, and looking for films that had given me that similar sort of sense of filmmaking and storytelling in there. And those were the the two that uh, sort of stood out for myself. That's that's absolutely. So we're we're quite in sync tonight. There's obviously a bunch of films neither of us have watched, and Three Iron was going to be my second choice. I I'm a big fan of um, Kim D. Is it Kim Ki-yuk? Kim yeah. Ki-duk? Yeah. Um, so, and Three Iron, I think, is his finest film. You don't need to worry about subtitles too much. There's about 20 words of dialogue in the entire film. Um, I mean, none of his films are particularly verbose, but uh, uh, he's got a, 
he 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 is probably the voice of Korean. I'm going to call it independent or art house cinema. Um, he, he makes tons of films. There's a film a year. Some of them are a bit disturbing, like Mobius and uh, and The Isle. And but they're all beautiful to look at. They're all very interesting. And I absolutely see where you were going with the uh, with, with the with the connection with this. Certainly in terms of Three Iron. Yeah, it's uh, he's one of those directors I feel never gets the sort of attention that that he deserves um and i think mainly because his films are so hard to they're so hard to class because i mean on one hand he's making films such as spring summer fall winter and spring which are very art house and at the same time he's making very extreme films such as like bad guy and the isle um and he you either like normally when you're a filmmaker you make one or the other you either make extreme films or you make pretty films and somehow he's walking this line between the two he's still going back and forth so he can give us a film such as as you said such as mobius or uh the isle and at the same time he can give us something very thoughtful and artistic such as free eye and so and then occasionally give us something that just falls right between the two such as like samaritan girl but I think he's one of those directors I I would hope people especially as they begin to look deeper into sort of Asian cinema and they get past sort of like the initial directors or like Stephen Chow, Wong K. Wah, those sort of like key directors that everyone recommends that he would be someone that people would like discover, much like uh, Sion Sono, who I feel in more recent years, especially as his films have become more popular, sort of now move more into sort of like mainstream sort of interest, but for some reason, uh, Kim K. Duck is, he's always remained sort of that underground sort of secret handshake for between Asian cinema fans. I, I, I have always had him down as sort of a sight and sound magazine, uh, sort <laughs> of film director. Yeah, it, it, it's one for the film suits, which is a shame because he's a unique voice, certainly within Korean cinema. We don't get a lot of independent stroke art house voices that have a consistent output you get the old film here and there um and not only that he has a he has a group of people around him um so one of his assistant directors made the fantastic film bedeviled which is is, is totally out of of kim tiduk's playbook but done in a completely different way um so yeah good good choice there thank you um so that obviously brings us to the end of this uh, edition of the Asian Cinema Film Club. Um, next uh, pick obviously falls to Stephen to choose. So Stephen, what did you choose for our next episode? Well, I thought we'd stay in Hong Kong, but we'd go back a few decades and we'd have a look at another Bridget Lin film, which is Choi Hark's Peking Opera Blues. And I know we're both fans of it, and I think we'd both be looking forward to going back and watching it again. Yeah, Peking Opera Blues, it's another... I, I think it's one of those films that when... So the initial boom for Hong Kong cinema first hit and people were like getting into like Jackie Chan films, Sammo Hung films, then Peking Opera Blues was certainly more of, much more of a presence. Now it seems to have sadly, for whatever reason, fallen under the radar of most moviegoers. And it's... Uh, as you said, I think if we're looking at Bridget Lim films, I think it's really one of the the key titles, really, for for her filmography so uh definitely gonna be fun to look go back and obviously revisit that one so 
Um, but yeah, as I said, this hour brings us to the end of another edition. We hope you've enjoyed. Obviously, if you wish to, uh, if you uh, wish to help support the show, please do uh, hit that subscribe button or leave us some nice, uh, nice words on uh, iTunes or Podomatic. Uh, whether you happen to be listening to this if uh, people want to obviously find more of your work Stephen where is the best place as always to find you well you can have a look on my blog which is guelo-ramblings.wordpress.com although I have to admit this year has been fairly empty because I've been so busy working on various things for easternkicks.com um, which is uh, your number one resource UK uh, Asian film site plug 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 <laughs> yeah um yeah that's uh definitely always something interesting happening over at eastern kicks and uh even if you're outside the uk it's still a fantastic site if you're an asian cinema fan there's definitely if i'm to list my like list of my top sites for asian cinema i think it's right up there with midnight eye uh for that sort of resource so i uh, definitely uh, check them out as for myself, if you uh, want to follow me, I'm on Twitter, which is at Owen underscore Jones. Uh, the blog is from the dexttvhell.blogspot.co.uk. And uh, as always, all the listings can be found on the Facebook page, which is on the under from the Depths of DVD Hell as well. Um, but uh, as I said, this wraps up uh, another episode. I uh, hope you've enjoyed listening, and we will be back next time with Peking Opera Blues. Hey。昨日の恋は忘れて、昨日のあの子は忘れて、踊り続けていたい。夜の空、月が暮れて落ちても、星が燃えて落ちても。Hold on,